So we continue our series today, the B-I-B-L-E, and today we're looking at interpreting the Bible. We've titled today's uh, sermon, Hermeneutics 101. We'll talk more about what that means in just a minute. So I often get the question uh, when people find out what I do, uh, what translation I read. And so um, that's a good question, and uh, it's one that I'd be happy to answer. Um, I'll say this, of all the kind of English translations that you have available to you, so whether you have a hard copy or whether you're accessing it online at Bible Gateway or Bible Hub or one of those things, all of the modern English translations are really quite excellent. Like you really can't go wrong with, it, with one of them. The, the, behind them lies a certain translation kind of philosophy or theory. So some are very formal, some are very functional. Uh, by formal, they're kind of seeking to be very consistent. They, they're very kind of static almost. And by functional, uh, they're seeking to be kind of very dynamic. But, but all of them are, are solid. You really can't go wrong. So on the formal end, you would have things like uh, the King James or the New King James or the New American Standard. On the more kind of dynamic end, you would have uh, the NIV, uh, the New Revised Standard. Uh, sometimes people ask me about the message. It's a translation produced by Eugene Peterson. Some people are uncomfortable with it because it sounds very different from what they're used to. Uh, I'll say this about Eugene Peterson. First, I'll say he's one of the most influential writers uh, in my life. Uh, he's definitely on the short list of people who've influenced me. He was pastoring a church, and it took him 14 years to translate the message. So as a full-time pastor, he would spend a couple hours a day translating from the Hebrew Old Testament and from the Greek New Testament, and then he would take it home and he would read what he had translated to his wife to say, how does this sound? Uh, do you understand what it says? And so what all translators hopefully try to do is they try to take something from the original language, they should know it well enough that they understand what it means in the original language, and then they'll try and say it in, the, in a second language as best they can and communicate all that was there. And I would say uh, that Eugene has done that most excellently. It is, it is one of the better translations, and I would certainly endorse that uh, for you to read. In terms of practice, though, um, I, I would recommend that you don't read lots of different translations. Like, I think devotionally, you're better off to just pick one and stick with it because the translations will be fairly consistent on how they translate things and then to see the kind of arc of the narrative, uh, to see the kind of uh, forest for, despite all the trees that are there, I think it's best to kind of stick with the same one. Now, if you're trying to go kind of another level, kind of beyond the devotional or kind of spiritual life reading, and you really want to dig down and study a passage, well, perhaps then you can do a comparative analysis of multiple translations. But generally, just for your spiritual well-being, uh, I'd encourage you to kind of just stick with one, stick with it for a few years, uh, maybe a decade or so, and then if you want to switch to something else, then you can switch. And that's, that's not an exaggeration. It really does take a lot of time. All right, so uh, interpreting Scripture. We used this passage of Scripture uh, last week, but I wanted to start uh, again here. This comes from 2 Timothy, and it says, Do your best 
to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly explaining the word of truth. So I read that, that particular translation last week, except I, I didn't actually um, use it very much. I didn't say explaining the word of truth. I kept saying rightly dividing the word of truth because that's a, a, a translation that I kind of am familiar with and I use it a lot. And then I had some questions after the service. Well, what does it mean to rightly divide? Well, maybe I shouldn't have used that phrase. <laughs> maybe I should have just stuck with this, like rightly explaining. So that's what rightly dividing means, like comparing the right things with the right, the right parts with the right parts and explaining it, e exposing um, the meaning uh, the best we can. That, that's just all that means. So hopefully that wasn't too confusing. So some people like to imagine that uh, text, especially scripture, does not require interpretation. It's simple. It's straightforward. It says what it means, and it means what it says. Some texts are that simplistic. Uh, so, for example, your electric bill is very straightforward. If you get an electric bill, and it says you owe $402, then you can't interpret that to mean, oh, that's a lot of money. And you look at your bank account, and it has, you know, $450. And you think, well, a lot of money could be like half. That'd be a lot, right? And so you send in your, you know, $225 and thinking, well, I've interpreted this correctly. No, nope, you haven't interpreted that correctly. That's pretty straightforward. But there, but there are other forms of text that are not as straightforward. So take a stop sign, right? So a stop sign. You pull up to the stop sign and you stop, we'll say. <laughs> You'll look both ways. Uh, if nothing's coming or if so everyone else has stopped, what do you do next? You go. Does the sign ever say go? No, it doesn't. Right? You're a bunch of liberals is who you are. <laughs> Do you not know how to follow the text? The text says stop. It does not say go. Show me a passage of scripture where it says go. You know, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. <laughs> there are rules that we follow as we interpret different types of text. And we'll, we'll talk uh, more extensively about that in just a minute. I'll say this. All texts really need interpretation, except for the simplest of things. And um, there's a couple of stories that kind of point to this, and we'll look at them briefly. Uh, the first one is a post-resurrection story that occurs only in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, it goes something like, well, it goes like this. Now, on the same day, and that same day, by the way, is the day that they found that the tomb was empty, the day that Jesus was resurrected. Two of them, this is two of the followers of Jesus, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you're walking along? And they stood still, uh, looking sad. Then one of them whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place? 
um, there in these days. He asked them, what things? They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes. And besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early uh, this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us, and they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it as the woman had said, but they did not see him. Then they said to him, or excuse me, then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things about himself in all the scriptures. There are several things about that passage of scripture that kind of stand out to me. Jesus, Jesus is dead, right? He's died. He, he was crucified. They saw that. They laid him in a tomb. And they said, we had hoped he would be the one. So when Jesus died, it's not like they said, well, I guess we've got the weekend. Anybody want to go fishing? Like, do we have time to make it up to the Sea of Galilee, you know, get in a night of fishing and make it back? Because then it's going to be work, 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 you know, once Jesus comes back to life. No, when, when, when he died, they thought, oh, no, this is, this is not what we expected. He must not have been the one. And then, even after they heard the tomb was empty, it's not like they said, oh, yep, there you go. I remember that was in Scripture so-and-so. You know why it was hard, perhaps, for them from their Scriptures to believe in the resurrection of the dead? It's because none of their Scriptures reference a resurrection of the dead. <laughs> right? We've got this kind of vague passage in Ezekiel 37 about a valley of dry bones, which would later be interpreted to other things. But it's like no one would actually read that and then anticipate that some person that they knew who had died would come back to life. Now you could say, well, didn't Jesus kind of hint at that? Yeah, Jesus did say a few things that after the fact, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. we can kind of connect the dots. But apparently, whatever he had taught had not kind of shaped their expectations to experience what they were experiencing. So it says that Jesus interpreted it for them from Moses through the prophets. Uh, one translation says he opened the scriptures for them. Uh, perhaps we could say he rightly divided or he explained to them what they mean. So I, I just love that passage. There's another, uh, we won't read this one, but it comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I, I love this passage for a variety of reasons. Uh, Paul, who's been working in Corinth, and he's planted this church, and he's been kind of teaching the people. And they say to him, hey, uh, what kind of credentials do you have to kind of, you know, speak to us? Um, and by the way, we've had some other people who've come through and taught us, and they've got like really impressive credentials. So if you need, maybe we can write you a letter of recommendation. Like, 
you know, the Corinthian church endorses Paul. So you can carry that around with you. And Paul's like, are you kidding me? Uh, I, have, I have no letters of recommendation for you, nor do I need one from you. In fact, he says, I do have a letter of recommendation, but it's not written on tablets of stone, and it's not writ with ink and paper. It's written on my heart by the Spirit, and it's a letter of Christ, and that letter is you. You are my recommendation. It's the extent to which you know and love God, the extent to which you know and love each other and serve each other, the extent to which you become the people of God, that is my recommendation. So there are a lot of things that might endorse someone in this world, various types of credentialing processes or uh, degrees and what have you. And so, you know, in my job, uh, it requires a certain degree to kind of do what I do, you know, Monday through Friday. I hold a PhD. They like the fact that I also kind of hold credentials with the church. You know, I'm licensed to preach. Did you know you had to have a license to do that? <laughs> it's like a driver's license. It's like a license to practice medicine or a license to practice law. You can actually get a license to preach. <laughs> I got one. I'll show it to you later. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's neither the degree that hangs on my wall or the license from the denomination that actually matters. Ultimately, the only thing that matters is the people that I teach become the type of people that reflect the love of God. Like, you are the letter of Christ written on my heart and written on Phil's heart. It's only the extent to which you become better interpreters of scriptures and lover of your neighbors that there's anything to endorse us. This other endorsements, are, they're, you know, they're paper. They're, they're, they're not worth much. And this is what he says. And then he moves on and he says this. They, and they read Moses until this day. That is, they're reading the, what we would call the Old Testament until this day, but a veil covers their eyes. That is, they're reading the text, but they're not seeing what it means. They're not, they're not getting its point. He says, it's only when we turn to Christ is the veil removed. And there is the Spirit, or there is the Lord, and the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit is, there is freedom. Now, we interpreted that text a lot in my Pentecostal church growing up. Where the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. It meant that you could be very exuberant when you worship the Lord, right? You can shout and sing and jump and dance and run. And I'm for uh, all of that. I, I can shout with you all, run with you, we'll dance together, we'll sing. Except that I'm not quite so sure that's what this passage of Scripture was talking about. Where the Spirit of the Lord there is freedom is a reference to what they had just been talking about, reading Scripture, which happens when we turn to Christ and the Spirit that is then with us opens up this freedom to, to know, to learn, to understand. To be transformed, which is how that passage ends, will be transformed from glory to glory, meaning we'll ever be becoming more and more like Christ, and that kind of never, ever ends. Not even in the next life. So, um, how do we interpret Scripture? This, this word that gets used um, in, the, in the first passage we looked at in Luke, Jesus interpreted for them. The Greek word is hermeneuo, 
And it's where we get the English word hermeneutics, hence the title of the, of the sermon, Hermeneutics 101. It simply means to interpret. So there are a couple of things, a couple of basic rules that I can share with you that can be helpful when you're interpreting scripture. One of them is this. Each genre has its own rules. So when I say genre, I mean kind of type or category. And so we know certain genres of music or art or literature. Do you have your favorite genre of music? And it is? It's okay, you can tell. It's, I know it's in church. Confession's good for the soul. What's your favorite genre of music? Rock and roll. Right, kind of classic rock, I guess, from the reference. Right? A little bit of the Eagles or, or uh, Bon Jovi or something. What else do you like? Country? Yeah, country music. Salsa. Folk. I can get into some folk music, yeah. Give me, give me a, are they, accordion, that'd be great. Christian rock, yeah, that's an interesting one. What, classical? Yeah, somebody else say something? Jazz, oh, that's good, very classy. Folk, anybody like folk music? I can always hear a good mandolin and banjo. All right, so we, we got that. Different genres of music. All right, what about different genres of art? Do you have your favorite artist? Do you like the Impressionist, like Monet? Do you like the Modernist, like Chagall or Picasso? The Surrealist, can you understand what that means, right? Uh, good old Salvador Dali. We have different genres of art. We have different genres of literature. So what's your favorite genre of literature? Do you have a favorite genre of literature? History? Yeah, I like history. Yeah. Historical fiction. Comic books, what'd you say? That's an interesting, that's an interesting genre. I like it. Yeah, so we have, we have uh, sci-fi. I'm a big sci-fi fan, right? Love me a good Ursula Gwynn or Margaret Atwood. Um, we have... Uh, uh, romance. Uh, we have mystery. Um, we have different kind of, of genres of art, of music, of literature. And when we come to scripture, there are different genres. And genres have particular rules. All right, so a quick example. Uh, three different genres that you're very familiar with. Uh, a recipe, uh, a grocery list, and a poem. So they all could just be a list of words, um, but you read them differently. Like there's certain kind of expectations when you're reading, if you think you're reading a poem versus if you think you're reading a recipe uh, versus if you think you're reading a grocery list. I mean, if it's a grocery list, it doesn't matter too much what order it goes in. You know, you just kind of make your way to the grocery store. You're going to collect these things. I mean, you might think, well, this stuff's frozen. I'll pick this up last because I've got to commute home. But, but generally, it doesn't matter too much. A recipe, on the other hand, does matter, right? You need to put those ingredients in in a certain order. It's not like, um, you know, you, you bake all the ingredients and then you try and put them together. <laughs> that was supposed to be funny. You, always, you, you laugh when, I, when I, I don't realize you're going to, and then I try and be funny. <laughs> you think that's not good. 
<clears throat> so again, we, we, have, we have different rules about how these things work. So uh, quickly, I'd like to just go through these three major genres and kind of give an example of each uh, and hopes to kind of prime the pump to get us started on interpreting well. I might say before we begin, there is no you know, 30-minute sermon that's going to be this kind of magic uh, pill or bean that you can take or plant that's going to kind of fix interpreting Scripture for you. Uh, this really is kind of a lifelong endeavor uh, and that people do and uh, those that do it well um, are those who often who have done it for a long time. But brief introduction, we did, we did title this Hermeneutics 101, not 501. So... First, the narrative. Uh, the challenge with narrative is that it often, the story often goes longer than what we're used to reading. So when we read scripture, we'll often find ourselves reading two or three chapters and think, hmm, well, I've kind of read a good bit for today. Maybe I'll set this down. And in doing so, we set it down kind of mid-story. So let's take the story of Joshua as an example. So we often, that is Joshua, the protege of Moses. So we often follow the story, and it's the whole kind of walls of Jericho, and it seems like a fairly contained unit. Um, there was the city, it was walled, Joshua led uh, uh, the Hebrews, and they kind of march around it. We even make kind of children's videos about it, right? Remember the Veggie Tales? It's where the peas throw down the milkshakes at the people. Yeah. But, but catch this. That story opens with a prologue about this woman named Rahab. And it ends with an epilogue about this man named Achan. Now, she's a Canaanite, and he's an Israelite, and she's a woman, and he's a man, and she's a prostitute, and he's a good, you know, good religious family man. And she does what's right, and he does what's wrong, and she and her whole family are saved, and he and his whole family are damned. That, I think, is part of what this story is about. And I think if you're not kind of reading to see the entire arc, you won't see that. You'll think you've read the story when really you've only read a part of it. Uh, one, one more quick example. Um, in the Gospel of Mark, there's a story with this woman who has an issue of blood, right? And so that story, again, seems fairly self-contained except that it's told in the middle of another story. Uh, Jairus, who is the ruler of the synagogue, is coming to Jesus saying, Can you, would, will you come and heal my daughter? And so off they go on the journey. On the way, the woman of the issue of blood uh, presses through the crowd and touches Jesus, and the story starts to unfold. The story ends with Jesus getting to Jairus' uh, house, and he heals um, the daughter. So the one story in the middle, again, seems fairly self-contained. But when you see, when you see the whole arc, uh, the woman's been sick for 12 years. The, the girl's 12 years old. Uh, it's the daughter of the ruler of the synagogue. Jesus calls the woman my daughter. Uh, she has an issue of blood. We don't have to get into that today on a Sunday morning. But uh, she would not have been allowed to go to the synagogue or to the temple, Right? Uh, and he's the ruler of the synagogue. Her healing would have included her in the same way that her, his healing of the girl would have included her. Right? It's, the, it's the story, right? It's the plot. Um, I said one example, so here's my third one. Um, 
We, we mentioned last week with um, Gideon kind of hanging out the fleece. Is that an example of to, what to do or what not to do kind of thing? So that's, that's one example of the time when he would not trust God and demanded something more. It's like the second of what would be three times. So God calls him. He goes, I don't know. Can I trust you? Prove it. Prove yourself to me, right? And he lays out this kind of, um, you know, do this for me kind of ask. Uh, he does that again. That's the fleece one. He, doesn't, he does it again. But that's the part of the whole kind of storyline of, of where Gideon's not doing what he's supposed to do, but God kind of does things for him anyway. In fact, God kind of flips the script on him in the end. It's, it's really fascinating. But again, uh, if, we look to, if we look too closely sometimes, it's unhelpful, right? So in what is the Bible... Uh, Rob Bell refers to this at reading at a high altitude, that being able to kind of see the contours of the storyline. And all stories have storylines. They have plots. They have characters. They have character development. And, and that is part of the biblical narrative as well. And so we need to be able to kind of read and learn those stories kind of in that larger arc. The next category is poetry. Now, I don't know about the rest of you, but I felt like I came late in life to poetry. I would, I would, you know, in college, they would read a poem, and then I'd hear my classmates talk about what the poem means, and I'm like, what? How did you get that out of that? I just thought it was a, you know, a road. I just thought it was, you know, a flower. What? What? No one else struggle with poetry? Yeah, all of you like love your best poets and go to open mics and read your poetry and stuff. <laughs> so um, uh, recently, I read this article, and it asked a very kind of interesting question. So it's written by someone who kind of does what I do. Uh, she teaches at a Christian college, and she says she'll often ask her students, "Why do you read the Bible?" And consistently, they answer three things: Why do you read the Bible? to tell me what to believe, to tell me how to behave, and for comfort. So she says those are the three main reasons that her students say they read the Bible, to tell them what to believe, to tell them how to behave, and for comfort. She then proceeds to read them 2 Samuel chapter 13 and the story where Tamar is raped by her brother. Uh, that story does not resolve very well. In fact, somehow the story ends up being about her father, David, as opposed to being about her, right? And so it doesn't really tell you what to believe, and it doesn't really tell you what to do, right? She begs to marry her rapist so that she can be legitimate in the kind of culture, and then she's denied. I mean, she gets literally nothing. Not comfortable, right? right? If, if, you, if you can read that story and you think, oh, wow, this is really interesting story. Uh, something's wrong, right? Take, take it out of its context and hear that story anywhere else and you would be disturbed. So the question then comes is that these types of readings, these types of stories aren't intended to tell us what to do or what to believe or to give us comfort, but they do challenge us. They challenge our, our emotions and our, our empathy. 
How, how are we going to respond to such a thing? Do we grieve with her? Right? Do we, do we, do we kind of long for justice for her? So sometimes as we read a text, the point of the text is to have an effect on us. To kind of to form us into a different type of people. Right? The type of people who do care about such things and don't just listen to those stories and let them kind of roll off their backs. Uh, last week, we quoted uh, Psalm 137. It's a very short psalm. It opens up, you know, sing us a, sing us a song um, of Zion. Right? This, this, is still, uh, this is still poetry, by the way. Sorry, I jumped, jumped ahead there. But um, <clears throat> sing us a song of Zion. And he's like, no. You know, I've, I've, I've hung up my instruments. I'm not singing any songs. I hate you stinking Babylonians. I'm sitting here in exile. My home was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The king's eyes were plucked out. You know, one of these days, you Babylonians, you're going to get yours. I can't wait until your children's heads are smashed in with rocks. And that's how that song comes to an end. Like, there's no resolution here. There's, there's, there's no happy ending. This person is just kind of sitting in, in uh, misery. But yet, it's a psalm in Scripture. So again, I, I don't think the, the poem or the song here is to make us feel good. Nor do I think it's trying to tell us how we should behave. Like, you should not want your enemy's children killed. Like, that's not the right attitude. That might be an attitude that sometimes real people have, but this is not an endorsement of those things. But it is a, 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 a significant level of honesty. So one of the things I, I love about the Scriptures is that the heroes are flawed, and they, are, they don't get whitewashed, or at least uh, not most of the time anyway. Yeah? And so when you read uh, poetry, it's supposed to make you feel something. It reminds me of that, that scene from Dead Poets Society, um, you know, where they're kind of graphing out the poem, and he has them rip it up, and he says, look, uh, we're not laying pipe here. We're, we're reading poetry. Uh, it's not, it's not for, to sustain life, right, in the, in the simplest of forms, but it's to kind of give life. Um, I will say this. You, you probably should listen to and read uh, more poetry uh, because in doing so, there's a good third of Scripture that you will be able to better read and understand. Like, if you don't get other poems when you read them, what makes you think you're getting that one-third of Scripture that's poetic? Whether it's in the wisdom, whether it's in the Psalms, whether it's in the prophets, we have to kind of hone our skill set here if we're going to be readers of Scripture, and a third of Scripture is poetry. Uh, lastly, uh, what they called prose discourse. So here... These are the law codes. They're supposed to be fairly straightforward, right? Uh, the letters, the creeds. Like, I understand what letters are. I, I can read those. 
So let's just think about the law codes. They seem straightforward, right? Just like the electric bill. Do what they say do, don't do what they say don't do. If I said that correctly. But let's, let's look at that, that kind of, that real popular list. You've heard of it, the Ten Commandments. So that first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Hmm. Is that the same thing as saying there's only one God? You should have no other gods before me. To which they would say, all right, we'll just worship this God, not the other gods. So there's the God of Israel, but then there's the gods of Egypt and the gods of Canaan and the gods of Assyria and the gods of Babylon. And they probably believed in all those gods, but their rule was worship just this God above all those other gods. Do you realize that's not what we believe? Like, we believe that there is only one God. Technically, we're monotheist. We believe in one God, right? They were henotheist. They worshipped one God amongst others. This is a change, a belief. The ancient people were not 21st century conservative evangelical Christians. They were ancient people kind of living in their place and time with their own kind of belief systems. And so even, even the, the, the law codes are not as um, simple as they might, might uh, seem. Listen, if laws were simple and straightforward, there would be no need for attorneys or judges. Like, there would be no need for anyone to ever interpret a law. You, you realize, like, how our system works? We work in a, in a system of, like, laws. But then there are people who interpret the laws, and they kind of, you know, interpret whether or not this law applies in this situation. It's because there's a lot of malleability in how those things work. Uh, one, one last example here in terms of prose discourse. Sometimes we'll get in the practice. This is kind of like uh, received history, right? This is the way we always read. We'll get in the practice of reading a fairly straightforward passage, but only reading it in a particular context, which then shapes the way we understand it. So 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. It is not boastful or rude. You've heard this before? In what context do we normally read this passage of Scripture? Weddings, yes. Now, I'm not opposed to reading that passage of Scripture in weddings, but I do find it problematic that when we read that passage of Scripture publicly, it's almost exclusively in the context of a wedding. What that has done to us is we've imagined that the Apostle Paul is saying, wow, here's a really high standard of love, and if you can reach this level, you can marry this person. The problem is that the passage isn't talking about marriage. It doesn't use marriage as a metaphor. It's nowhere in the neighborhood of the passage. Paul's saying, look, when you get together and worship, there's a lot of gifts that are available to the, to the church. But those gifts are kind of useless without love. And then he offers us this definition of love, not as some high bar that if you reach this level, then you can make a lifelong commitment with, your, with someone, but as a low bar. Like, this is how we treat each other. This, this is how all of us should expect 
all of us to behave. This is how you should expect yourself to behave in Christian community. That this, this is the standard for us. Now, it doesn't mean I'm going to marry you all, either to myself or to each other. <laughs> but it does mean that in the body of Christ, this is the standard of who we are. And I think that can be missed when we kind of reserve it just for weddings. Um, so even, again, very straightforward passages can be uh, misunderstood. So, <clears throat> one thing that I find fascinating is that um, words, even exactly the same words, placed in a different context can mean something completely different. Other than genre and the rules of genre, the, the other kind of very important uh, rule of interpretation is context. And if you don't know the context, you could very well miss the meaning. Now, I might say, this is neither a statement for or against State Farm. Uh, so don't, don't anybody get offended. If you like, you know, Farm Bureau or Geico, what have you, Progressive, that's fine. Um, but... But what I'm hoping that even something as simple as that might communicate to you is that when you read, above all else, we need a hermeneutics of humility. We need to be able to hold on to our interpretations loosely with an expectation that, that in our community and in our tradition, there'll be times which we might need to change, right? That there's more to learn than what we've learned so far.